HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with another Michael, Michael Salomonoff, hailing from Philly, the man behind Zahav, Federal Donuts, uh, Percy's Barbecue, and soon... Yeah, we just opened uh, Citron and Rose, oh, too. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks for having Not me, Not busy at all, huh? <laughs> I don't know. I know. I'm like, we're escaping Philly today. Yeah. We're coming up to Brooklyn to yeah, kick it. So thanks so much for having me. It's a nice me, little respite, you know, and it's warm <laughs> in here on this cold day. Um your journey is kind of fascinating. Uh, you know, arriving at the kind of cuisine that you make now uh, was not a linear path in any which way. Born in Israel, in Tel Aviv. When did you move to Pittsburgh? We moved. Uh, we moved when I was like three-ish or two-ish or something like that. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember Israel? Do you remember eating there? The life, the culture. You know, I remember we the first couple of years after we moved that we went back a bunch. So a lot of my earlier memories, I, I do have, I think, some memories as, as a child there. Uh, but a lot of my memories were sort of for the first couple of years moving back. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, as a young kid too, obviously it's a different palate than when you're an adult. Totally. Uh, do you remember some of those flavors? Absolutely. I think it's like. It's more than that. I mean, it's, there's like flavors and smells and sounds and, and all those, and that's sort of it. And you can still, when you get off the airplane now as an adult, I can still get it, you know? In yeah. the winter, there's like orange blossom in the air and all that. And then there's the smell of like street food and, you know, coffee and obviously a shitload of cigarettes, yeah. you know? And <laughs> <laughs> so I think all those things are, are sort of like as one, you know? Yeah. yeah. So mm. the transition to Pittsburgh, uh-huh. a town known for what? At the time, not much. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty depressing. I think <laughs> we, uh, my, uh, my mom's like family owned a jewelry store there that was pretty successful, and my dad uh, wanted to like move to the states. You know, he's Israeli, so we wanted to move to the states, and ended up being a jeweler. Goes figure, right? Yeah, Israeli jeweler, <laughs> super novel. Yeah, 
And uh, we, so we ended up moving there and, you know, it was like, in retrospect, it was a really cool place to grow up and we had a good, you know, it's like beautiful and there's a lot of, um, you know, the topography is like very interesting and schools were good and we had like a nice little community, but it was, you know, it was boring. I was kind of used to something <laughs> else. We moved back to Israel when I was like 15 yeah, and I ended up in a, um, a boarding school in the north of, uh, of Israel. So that was in birthright. That was the whole family picked up and that moved was, back. Yeah. It was like when it was like, yeah, when I was like fifth, like a, I think I was like a sophomore in high school. Yeah. My parents were like, Hey, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna go back, you know? And, and, uh, it, I mean, it's, su- it sucked at the time. It was a hard time to move. You're just sort of getting settled into, you know, whatever sort of like post adolescent, you know, it was oh, crazy. Actually. Yeah. I'm I was in a, trying to get some, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I was like the biggest asshole in the world yeah. to my parents. I was like, I'm going to make your life hell. So <laughs> whatever, you know, drug using I'm going to do is going to increase and I'm going to yeah. get into trouble and all that. And, but it was cool. I mean, moving there was, <clears throat> you know, one of the, that was probably the most formative year of my life. And some of my best friends are from that year still. And you, you know, it was like you and like, it was 40 kids on this, um, 40, like, American kids that were so fucked up, their parents were like, we're going to send you to Israel to <laughs> straighten you up, you know? And um, we ended up, like, you know, it was, like, 40 of us on this, like, little farm uh, sort of community. And uh, it was, uh, we were, like, you know, picking, like, oranges and pamelas and learning about the country and sort of not integrating necessarily, even though, like, more than half the kids stayed and sort of became Israeli. But it was really cool. Um, and so different from what I was used to in the States. I mean, if you grew up in middle or like upper middle class suburb or even metropolitan area anywhere in the states you kind of have an idea of what your life is like yeah. right everyone's kind of doing the same thing and to to be just sort of, sort of like whiplashed into a different culture where you know um mannerisms are totally different you know humor is totally different it was uh, it was before the second Antifada, so it was like freaking impossible to pick up women it was so <laughs> hard um and i mean you didn't even have hebrew under your belt you're no, an my american kid yeah, I was like an American kid. My parents, you know, I knew a couple words from like Hebrew school, but my parents generally spoke English unless they wanted me to like not know what they were talking about. Yeah, and about, it's not so. like you can, you know, recite the Via Hafta at a bar and like you can. The biblical numbers. shit doesn't work, <laughs> dude. Yeah, you can't sing song like exactly. Like no, nobody's gonna right. Nobody's gonna let you talk yeah. to them. But it was also cool because we were at the time. I mean, there was things were different there. Like Rabin was still sort of in power, and things were looking really good for the country and there were um we were there were russian immigrants and american immigrants and then ethiopians started moving so there were just all types of kids you know that had gone through so much and we thought you know like americans were you know we had all these kids from like la or long island or whatever and we all thought we were tough guys until like the russians moved in (laughs) and they would kick the shit out of us but i mean hearing these multi-culti you know russian ethiopian Mm -hmm. uh coming in uh, it also kind of translate into israel itself totally even even though it's a state of you know what people think of you know jewish zionist even um there are so many different people there oh it's amazing speaking of food too i mean within the israeli or uh, that sect of cooking there are so many different influences as well exactly it's super relevant and i think that was probably sort of an eye-opener for that i I remember being in, in boarding school and we used to just go eat we'd like smoke shitty cigarettes and drink um vodka which was like at the same time the same you know, it was the price of a pack of, like, Marlboro Reds. It was, like, a bottle of vodka. Yeah. And then every, like, third week, we'd have enough money to, like, walk down to the Yemenite restaurant, and we'd have, like, bowls of Yemenite soup, which, like, was a very normal thing to do there. But, like, uh, nobody does that kind yeah. of stuff here. Can you, you explain know? what Yemenite is? Well, well Yemenite the is obviously the st- uh, style of food in Yemen, but, but in Israel it's specific to the Jewish uh, community that was for so long removed 
from the rest of the world. A lot of people think that Yemenite Judaism is sort of the purest form because they were like kind of the lost tribe. Yeah. The, the Ethiopians and the Yemenite were like the, you know, um, and they're actually one of the latest to immigrant, yeah. to immigrate rather to, uh, to Israel. So. I mean, the, one of the few Yemeni, uh, uh, like flavor profiles I know is, is it Hawaji? Yeah, it's Hawaj. Yeah. Or yeah. Hawaj. Hawaj. Or, yeah, exactly. And what, what does that comprise of? Turmeric, cumin, black pepper. Um, is generally it. Um, Leor Love, our spice guy, yeah, you know, he'll... Uh, he's been on this show before, and I must say, I am <clears throat> addicted to Apollonia. Oh, my God, idea. I know. It's, like, hard to yeah. stop, like, rubbing on my gums and <laughs> shit. It's so good. But he, um, you know, he'll insist on a couple different kinds of turmeric, and it depends on who you ask, but generally speaking, it's uh, cumin, black pepper, and uh, and uh, turmeric. But, actually, Hawaj is kind of the word like for curry with Yemenite food there's like a couple different kinds of hawaj and there's a coffee kind they they call it uh, like white coffee basically and it's got like sesame seeds and peanuts in it yeah. now and cardamom which is cool and then there's like uh, the one that we spoke of which is the soup hawaj you know yeah. so it's um, so that's you know that's like Yemenite cooking and that's one small very very small facet in like the Israeli scheme of things so yeah. but being introduced to that from like a you know I was like a middle class like Jewish kid from the states it was really it was jarring and it was amazing and um, you know you're sort of thrusted into this like globalism thing that you just never really knew existed so what other things you know like pizza and pierogies here um, <clears throat> oh, did you there? go out for in well I mean Israel? we did the falafel stuff I mean truth be told I was not that into food at the time yeah um, so but I mean everything was like totally different there's like different pastries that are all over the you know street people eat their dessert there all the time so it's like you know you'd every time you'd go to somebody's house it's like coffee cake well, it's it like is the land cake. of honey and the milk and honey. Yeah, right. milk and honey. Right, yeah. right, right, exactly. It's almond milk, actually. Yeah, and date honey is what their date molasses is the actual the real reference. But yeah, so everybody eats sugar over there. There's no fucking Atkins. Nobody knows what that is even is, you know. And uh, people just go out, man. Like they go out. Like I worked years later when I was 19. I started cooking there, so I was 18 actually. And I worked at this coffee shop that would literally stay open until 6 a.m. serving food on, like, a fucking Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was like a school night, you know? And it was – the people, that's just what they do. They go out and bars, like – I don't know. It's different. Nobody gets, like, shwasted, really. Yeah. I mean, they do, but not, like – It's it's more of a constant thing. If you're going to stay up till 6 a.m., it's not like you can, you know, right. front load your Well, night. and also, I think that it's just accepting. It's like al- alcohol isn't a thing. There's no prohibition over there. Nobody really – gives a shit i mean now it's a little bit different there's a little bit more um i guess not violence but i guess they're aware of like drunk driving yeah you know but it wasn't something you grew up like you could do it if you wanted to you could go to the store and buy beer whenever you wanted so like really wasn't that big of a deal you know and staying up and eating is a big deal you talk about this transformative time in your life and you kind of glossed over that you just started working at a bakery Mm -hmm. this was a choice to work in food or was this just a job well i had no like skill set i was like uh i dropped out of college you know and i was like a photo major and my hebrew sucked so the only job i could really get was like in this bakery and it was like you know pretty awesome and i mean by awesome i mean like terrifying and (laughs) great and also you know i was like an immigrant worker which is very interesting a good experience i think at the time barekas Barekas made a shitload of barekas. They're uh, and I was sort of infatuated with barekas because I was a really picky eater. But my grandmother would make these barekas, which are these Balkan sort of pastries. Yeah. They're actually Sephardic, so they're kind of like they call it Spanish dough, you know. And it's really a laminated dough, similar to puff pastry, and stuffed with like you know feta cheese and potatoes and olives or <clears throat> you know um, eggplant, mushrooms, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was obsessed with those as a kid. 
And then as an adult, I got to make them. And at first, I was like, man, I, you know, I'm not, I didn't even think I was going to be a chef, but I was like, I should open a barreca shop in the States. They're on every single street corner in Israel. Yeah. I mean, the only place I know them are in the Diamond District, you know, Apropoli, yeah. and you have to climb up, you know, three flights of stairs to have a barreca from That's like crazy. a weird glass sliding window. And Dude, I know. <laughs> whenever, whenever we, um, Whenever we go back to Israel, my wife, who's not Israeli, is like turns into like a Barika monster, man. <laughs> it's like Barika, Barika crazy. I'm a Barika, Barika me crazy. <laughs> that sounds like the shop that we should yeah. own together. Here or in I Brooklyn. mean, it could be a dance hall and it could be a Barika dancing. Barika dancer, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> terrible, terrible ideas, but now we have them on air and they will never be forgotten. I know, I know. So from Barekas, uh, when did you move back to the States and start attending culinary school? Well, I mean, after... So I did the Boreka thing, and then I got a job working at the cafe, and I and I sort of knew at that point that I was going to cook after that. It was like the intensity of it and the um, just the spirit of it. You know, there's something... I don't know. I mean, you find out, you know, what you love, and you sort of, like, pursue that, and that's what I was doing. I yeah. had no idea that there was, like, a career to be had, and quite honestly, I was used to, like, you know whatever selling pot and like not doing anything with my life so it was like everybody was super psyched like oh michael's (laughs) into something yeah that won't like get him arrested or killed so it was um you know everyone was super psyched in my family about that and i got to i I had this work ethic now that was sort of like ingrained in me a little bit from being in israel you know the foundation of cooking obviously uh is mainly french uh starting to become more and more italian here in the states um and you worked in some amazing restaurants in Philly, right? You know, Vetri uh, amongst them, which is an Italian restaurant. What happened? Why did you come back to Israel? Why that cuisine? Well, I mean, there was so when I was cooking at Vetri, I was there for a couple of years. Uh, actually, I was there for a year, and I was about to be like sort of promoted as sous chef. And I, uh, my, I'd gone. So he, <laughs> we only at one point there was only Vetri. You know that was the only restaurant. He yeah. Owned. He's got a, a couple of restaurants now, but and uh, and he ran it like super Italiano style, which means like in the summer we would close for Saturday Sundays. Yeah. And then in the summer he would also close the restaurant for like two and a half weeks in August, which is what I guess everybody does. Those days are far from gone, <laughs> uh, far far gone now. But so I um. I started there. I was working at Straight Bass. I got a job there. And then in August, we closed. And I went back to Israel. And I hadn't been there in like four years. And I had a younger brother named David who was uh, in the army. He was in a, he was a sniper in a, an infantry unit called Golani. And uh, he and I hadn't really spent that much time together. And my mom was like, you have to come home. You haven't seen your brother. You know, like, so I, I came home and uh, we kicked it for a couple weeks and just kind of went to the beaches and he was younger and it was like kind of the first time we had not fought all the time like we were you know we were just like brothers not younger brother not older brother we unsuccessfully went out to pick up girls and we would like go like disco tech dance you know like just it was all you know it was just cool man it was like really really cool and we did a lot of eating it was the first time i'd gone back and sort of been a chef or been really interested in cooking since i'd lived there and um I came back to the States and a month later he was killed actually. Um, and he was, he was, uh, he was exiting actually. He was about three days away from his completion of army service. And he happened to be in the, um, the border of, uh, Lebanon, uh, and was, um, patrolling and there was like a sensor set off and he was with a group of people and, and killed from, uh, Hezbollah snipers were like in Lebanon and fired in and, and killed him. So, you know, that was, uh, that was obviously, uh, hard, you know, to deal with, I mean, to say the least, but it was sort of transformative. I had never 
thought I would be cooking Israeli food. And then sort of after that, I just got drawn to it, you know, and I cooked for years under Mark. And Mark actually came, Mark Vetri came with me after Dave was killed to Israel. And we went up to the border and actually cooked for his unit. Yeah. Um, for like over 100 cooks or 100 uh, soldiers, rather. And uh, I just, I don't know, you know, it just sort of, it, it was natural to me after that. Like I got a job. It became more and more clear, although I loved cooking Italian food, that like I, I wasn't going to be happy doing that. And um, I took a job with uh, uh, the owner of a restaurant called Marigold Kitchen. It was this little sort of 35-seat BYOB in West Philly, and uh, he's now my business partner and uh, you know, sort of best friend. And we, uh, he just kind of let me cook what I wanted to, and I started just using Israeli ingredients. And it was kind of like American-European, but with like an Israeli nod. And after a little bit of time, I was like, we should just do Israeli food. Mm-hmm. Nobody's doing it. You know, there's like shitty falafel shops or the Boreka shops in the Diamond District or whatever, but nobody understands... Um, nobody understands the sort of richness of this, like of these cultures that make up this country that have all moved out. You know, they moved back from like the diaspora, sort of after Babylon. They've moved back to this this country, this land, and they're all sort of they're bringing it. You know, they're all cooking this amazing food, and I just wanted to do it, and it was a way to do something interesting, to do something fun, and from you know, chefs point of view it's like fucking awesome there's so many things going on there at once and it's like middle eastern it's mediterranean you know it's balkan it's like it's it's like lebanese it's syrian it's all this stuff in one place you know and like it's sort of like where you know modern farming began and modern winemaking began and and it was also a way for me to like you know represent the country a little bit like i you know it's like it was pretty fucked up after my brother you know, was killed, and it was really hard to. I didn't know for a while. I was like, oh, maybe I'll move back to Israel. I was actually working out, and um, <clears throat> I was working out and like training and like, you know, running with like weights and shit because I literally thought I was going to move back and like join the military and yeah. like whatever. And it was just, you know, it, it took a long time for me to get okay or comfortable with where we are now, which is like me obviously trying to promote the country as best as I can. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And although on a somber note, we're going to come back and talk about the gold that you found in Zahav. Awesome. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Did you know that pollinators are needed for more than two thirds of the world's crop species? Most of these pollinators are bees. However, North America's bee population has been steadily declining since the 1990s. Whether you live in the country or the city, you can show your commitment by hosting a hive in your backyard or even on a rooftop. The beekeeping movement is growing, so you're sure to find swarms of folks who can help you find your way. Learn more about the ways you can help be the solution at wholefoodsmarket.com slash share the buzz. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Michael Solomonoff, a.k.a. Mike Solo. Mike Solo. Always, <laughs> Just call me Mike Solo. Um, yeah. Zahav. It means the word gold, right? Yeah. It, it, it was, well, more than a diamond in the rough. Uh, in an area of Philly, Society Hill, um, which is better known for what kind of businesses and buildings? Mm, well, I mean, we're like in the sort of the base of the Society Hill Towers, which is like this big sort of architectural 
thing that IMP built in the 60s, I guess, late 60s or early 70s. So there wasn't really a lot going on there. And uh, <clears throat> we opened there. Um, it happened to be this shitty Italian restaurant that had uh, the guy brought in a guy from Naples to build this wood burning oven. So we're like, oh, cool. We've got a taboon, which is like an Arabic oven. So it was like, check, you know, and um, it's kind of it's, it's like in a peculiar area. But now it's we're fine with that. Yeah. But I mean, when you turn the corner and see that thing sitting on the hill, it must have some kind of uh, feels like a biblical reference almost. Well, it's weird. I mean, I remember the day that we put that sign up and Steve and I like walked across the street and looked up and I was like, well, this is for real now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's cool. I mean, I, you know, it's a weird area, I guess, but it's kind of what it is, man. I mean, every restaurant is so freaking difficult in so many different ways and everyone's like, oh, the location sucks. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, right now yeah. we're like sitting in the back of a pizza shop and like, <laughs> what I don't know, what was here before? That, Not much, That's right? a good question. When things turn over in New York... <laughs> I have no idea. I remember hanging out with my buddy in Bedside like uh, 10 years ago, and he was like, there's like a 75% chance your car is going to get stolen yeah. tonight. <laughs> and it didn't, but a homeless guy definitely took a shit on the front tire. Yeah. And uh, now it's like an unaffordable area. So, oh, well, no, now it's 50% in piss. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> <laughs> it just so, downgraded. So, I mean, it's kind of a weird area, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, opening a, we opened an Israeli restaurant in Philly in 2008, which is like in in sort of reasonable terms would be the worst business decision one could ever make. And and we ended up, you know, it was the first year was like incredibly difficult, but it, it worked and it worked because our, our concept is always sort of changing and we're always trying to do things that are exciting and new and we're trying to sort of bring it. And we had this idea that we would do this like really authentic food and then next to it do like really high end, you know, we had this little thing I wanted to kind of show off and, and do like a tasting menu kind of thing. Um, it was called the quarter, and so I'd do like separate menus and do this, and it just ended up being really confusing. And we were in this predicament where, like, in you know, we're in like eastern Pennsylvania, you know, which is not a very different climate than like Israel, right? And so, like, you know, eight months out of the year, you don't have cucumbers and tomatoes, and you're like, well, what the fuck do I do? So we had to adjust, and we had to change, and we had to make it more relevant, and our customers totally embraced that, and it became. It, you know, people call it modern Israeli. It's not. It's like relevant Israeli yeah. cuisine. You know, we're not. If, you, if you're in Israel and you're like, I want um, Bulgarian like kebabs, you go to a Bulgarian restaurant. You know, and and we can we can absorb that and kind of make it our own and have that right next to like fresh couscous that we make every day for so a Moroccan dish. You know? Though you use the word relevant, <clears throat> um, was there a lot of education? Because I don't think a lot of people understood what kind of cuisine you were serving at first. I you mean, know, even they still don't exactly. Yeah, but that's that's part of the. Part of the allure, I think. I mean, you even look at the breakdown, and excuse me if I'm mispronouncing this, uh, but like saltim, mezes, uh, shipadim, I mean. Yeah, shipadim, right, exactly. What are these things? Well, I mean, these are things that you get all over there. So saltim are salads, and like, you know, the biggest thing was like when you order salads here, you get a bunch of like little salads. You don't get like a fucking Caesar salad with yeah. like fucking fried shrimp or whatever. It's not like one of those things. It's like a bunch of little tastes, and vegetables are a huge part. Of Israeli cuisine. Fried cauliflower. Fried cauliflower. We did like pickled beets. We've got like, you know, the legumes that have been like, you know, poached in like tomato with coriander served at room temperature. You know, it's stuff that, stuff that I want to eat all the time. And yeah. it's stuff that you get. You sit down in a restaurant in Israel and they bring over a shitload of plates. And that's, we wanted to bring that here. You know, yeah. our hummus is, we like to make it as Israeli as possible, meaning that we used tons of trina or tahini. Or tahina paste, I don't know how you guys call it here, but <laughs> we call it tahina. And uh, 
you know, it's really rich and really nutty and not very garlicky and lemony, which most people are used to here, the sort of Greek and Turkish. Yeah, and you hummus. serve about four different kinds. We do. We serve that. We do hot um, fava beans that we, the dried fava beans that we stewed with, um, you know, coriander and caraway. And, and then we have masabacha, which is like hot chickpeas rolled in trina, put in the middle of it. So you get like this, this hot, cold sort of contrast thing. And then our Turkish, which um, is an, sort of an idea I got from Anas Ortun from Oleana. Uh, she travels tons in Turkey. And in central Turkey, the dairy quality is so high, they actually do melted butter. Wow. Yeah. Um, and when we were in Turkey, we had, they heat up the, it's like cool. They like heat, they like put it in like a earthenware kind of dish and they like bake it with like pine nuts. And I was like, man, got to do that. Yeah. You know? Sort of like the French meats. Uh, I don't know. It was awesome. So, and it's so different than what we do. And I feel like in the winter, it makes a lot of sense. So, but yeah. it's not all hummus on the menu. Um, that, that's another preconception, I think, of a lot of <laughs> Middle Eastern cuisines that, you know, you start with hummus. So right. it's nice to see all these other, you know, small salads. Totally. Uh, mezes, I've got to say the crispy halloumi with uh, the date is oh, one yeah. of my favorite dishes I've had maybe ever. Oh, I appreciate it. I mean, it. it's just kind of mind-blowing texturally and flavor profile-wise because growing up Ashkenazi um, and having things like kreplach or, you know, cholent, something stewed and dark yeah. to have such bright flavors and totally. such great texture is totally. that Sephardic side, which I never encountered. Yeah, I mean, that's great because that is that taps into the sort of the Greek and Turkish thing going on. And there's obviously, you know, like my grandparents, I mean, they immigrated, you know, from Bulgaria. And at a time when people are moving from Bulgaria, they had they went through Turkey, they went through Greece, and they, you know, got to Israel. What's relevant about that dish that not a lot of people know about is the date paste that we use that we get that that's from a kibbutz in israel called kibbutz kinneret it's like the second oldest kibbutz so it predates modern independence and the owner of that kibbutz or the guy that founded that had to smuggle date palms back from all over the middle east illegally to israel the ottomans when they sort of took over they burned all the date palms so this guy went out and brought so 90 percent of all the dates that are in israel are brought back basically by this guy yeah and so and they freaking like deliver a date paste to like walmart here in the states and we get a distributor that um sells it so it's awesome it's sort of like a sweet sour it tastes like french toast in a weird way i don't even know but i mean you don't have one of those menus which you know, gives the backstory of each dish because no. it would be a Bible. <laughs> it would be a Torah. It would be humongous. It would be. And also, like, we want it, you know, we're changing. Like, we want it, the, the menu and the experience that's will have to be sort of living and breathing. And when you start getting absolute with that stuff, it's that hasn't worked out very well. Kebabs, kofta. What yeah. are shipudims? Shipudim, shipud means it's like the stick. It's a skewer. So shipudim, there's like, um, if you go to like a skewer, like a kebab house in Israel, it's called shipudia, you know? And, uh, so that's part of our menu or part of like the, the sort of proteins that we cook, I guess. It'd be kind of the entree, even though it's small plates. We cook everything over charcoal and generally most of it's on sticks, whether it's like, you know, ground duck with like foie gras and pistachios or ground beef and ground lamb. We'll, um, we were cooking beef cheeks last winter in coffee and then glazing them on the grill as well. Let's see. What are we doing today? We, we actually made some VIPs and we were doing some lobster on awesome. the stick, which is pretty dope. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we'll talk about kosher a little bit okay. later. But tasting menus, you have the misiba. Um And yep. then what, what is the big hunk of lamb that you put in front of the table? So before we opened the restaurant, we actually I had a Passover Seder at the restaurant under construction. I um, We actually, after my brother died, my Mark Vetri and I, we would always do Passover Seders in, at his restaurant. And then he was like, hey, now that you have a restaurant, can I like, <laughs> can we do this at your place? Yeah. You know, and so... 
I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, we'll, you know, invite my, you know, my family wanted to come up and, and sort of see the restaurant and we were delayed. So we were under construction and like had all these people in the restaurant and we were like, had to cook a Passover Seder and, uh, we like, you know, I had like lamb shoulder and I had pomegranate juice and all that. And we ended up creating this dish that we served that night before we even opened, like it was two weeks before we opened, I think. And then it just became a signature dish. We, uh, brine lamb shoulder sort of bone in and then we cook it over charcoal or actually recently we've been smoking it at our barbecue restaurant and then we braise it in um pomegranate juice with chickpeas that have only been soaked so they're still kind of raw but then you throw them in and they absorb like all the lamb fat and all the pomegranate juice and then we roast that and glaze it and um we serve it with like a big freaking bowl of like persian rice so we we um we cook rice with turmeric and saffron and then get it crispy on the bottom and just serve it with it yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that is a true party time. <laughs> it is a party time. You're right. <laughs> but again, you mentioned Persian cuisine, and mm-hmm. we talked about Yemenite. I mean, there are so many different references, and there are more, like uh, Aleppo. Uh-huh. Uh, Aleppo, that- Syria, totally. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, we, and I was trying to explain this to, to the guy. We, you know, Before we opened the restaurant, we brought over like a whole group of people. Uh, and I was like, you have to, uh, like, I can't explain this. You just kind of need to see it. And a huge, uh, I think an eye opening moment for everybody was going to like my dad's place for Shabbat lunch. Cause his, you know, his family, um, is Bulgarian. And then his neighbor, <laughs> his neighbor, he dates their daughter, uh, from way back and they sort of immigrated in the fifties. So he is dating her and their family's Romanian. And then my, um, I've got a half sister and her husband's Persian. So, like, everybody shows up with food, and it's just, like, crazy time. You know, my Persian brother-in-law, he, like, makes rice and kills it. Kills it. He cuts an onion in his hand. That's, like, how he grew up. It's just, like, insane, right? So he makes this amazing rice, and then we get these, like, Romanian kebabs that are, you know, have, like, a shitload of garlic and, you know, paprika. And then, you know, the Bulgarian, we get, like, the pastel, like, the, the pastries and all that stuff. And it's all in one place, you know? And that is, I, I feel like, the analogy for Israel. You know, it's all sort of there. Um, so that, yeah, it's all it's all there, dude. Yeah. It's all there. And then with your new restaurant, Citron and Rose, yeah. going got kosher, mm-hmm. not being able to mix meat and dairy. Right. What are, obviously, it's happened for years, so it's not necessarily a struggle to make that cuisine. But as a restaurant, what are the struggles that are ahead trying to reintroduce this idea of really great tasting got kosher food? Well, I mean, I think that, again, it's like people aren't really doing it. So for us, you know, we have Zahav and we wanted to do something different. After we opened Zahav, we actually spent a little bit of time in Montreal just kind of checking out the... Because that, you know, that's like an Ashkenazi community that was brought over from Europe that sort of changed the way people think about pastrami or... You know, they were doing the OG charcuterie, right? They were making like preserved meat and yeah. brining and this and that. And um, we... So we'd been developing this sort of concept in our heads for a while, and my business partner, Steve, grew up more with Ashkenazi food than I did, and we kept talking about why people weren't really kind of doing that. And uh, we were approached by this um, philanthropist in Philly. Uh, his name is David Mogerman, and he really wanted a kosher restaurant. And we were like, well, this would actually make sense. I mean, we don't. the last thing we want to do is open up a restaurant that has no meaning, right? Like, I don't want to open a kosher restaurant just to, like, tap into this like kosher demographic to try to make some money i mean there's much easier ways than making money than opening a fucking kosher restaurant right (laughs) like anything but we are you know we're doing really well and we've only been open a couple weeks because it's like a cool restaurant we're doing you know we went to budapest and we went to paris and we wanted to like 
kind of explore this thing. I mean, you said it yourself. You're like Chant and like Kreplach. And those are things that we have on the menu. But, I mean, we in Hungary, man, they like smoke goose legs and put them in with the Chant. Or they, uh, you know, they'll like, you know, poach eggs really, really slowly and lightly. Or they use tons of foie gras, tons of bone marrow, tons of paprika, you know. And Paris, obviously, I mean, kosher food there. We went into these salami places. They have like 40 different kinds of salamis or they have all this like botarga that they're kosher botarga things that you just wouldn't ever expect and these are things that people have been doing for thousands of freaking years and it's just like gone yeah nobody knows you know like you hear um what are the uh blintzes? like that is not i mean that is obviously a part of jewish cooking but there is a lot to it you know jews were freaking nomads for thousands of years and they you know, there's obviously a lot of really exciting cooking traditions that we wanted to explore. Yeah, and it's not co-opted, like you said. It's it's nomadic, and it came back to a place to mm-hmm. be able to present it to everybody else. And that, right. that, that is the heartwarming part of, you know, your cuisine and uh, your people's, our people's cuisine. Our people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pure blood. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, I will take you to Schnitzies or Schnitzel King someday in totally. Brooklyn. Because totally. that's a, another kind of weird Ashkenazi Sephardic mix-up thing exactly. that, you know, is out in Borough Park and not many people get to. No, it's cool. I mean, I think there are all those things. Boreka shop, schnitzel sandwiches, um, Jerusalem Grill. Have you ever had that? No. Oh, my God. They take, like, chicken spleen, chicken heart, chicken yada yada, turkey this, turkey that, and they put it on a griddle and, you know, you know, marinate it and, and sear it up, and then they stuff it into a pita. pita. It's called Jerusalem Grill. It's awesome. That does not sound too shabby. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> we put it on the menu at Zahab when we were like grilling duck testicles. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to gloss over Federal Donuts. You don't want to gloss over <laughs> duck testicles. Yeah. That's what you were about I believe to say. I've had plenty of duck <laughs> fries in my life, and I remember them all. Um, but, you know, you have Percy's, Texas-style barbecue. You mm-hmm. have Federal Donuts. Yeah. Which, donuts and fried chicken. Totally. Amazing. What are the same kind of, you know, modes and methods that you implore into those restaurants that you do with Zahav and Citron and Rose? Well, I mean, that's a great question because we, it's hard, you know, we've got such a um, diverse sort of handful of these restaurants that we want our customer to feel a certain way, regardless of where they're at. If they're waiting in line for chicken and donuts in the morning or they're at Zahav, like, you know, elbows deep in lamb shoulder or they're at Citron and Rose and they've driven two hours from Brooklyn or Lakewood, uh, Lakewood, New Jersey to like have dinner. We want, you know, I don't know. I'm going to sound like totally cheesy, like I'm a, oh, no, like a motivational right. speaker. But, you know, every customer, especially now, they've got choices. They can go anywhere they want. And the fact that they've come to one of our establishments makes them special. Like they should be treated special, whether it's, you know, whether it's like an extra donut while they're waiting in line or like a donut for their kid or it's a hob. I mean, we have, you know, we have like a lot of regular customers and we want to blow people away. And whether it's like a visit for me or an extra meze or, you know, if they're like Lebanese, we send out Lebanese Arak or if they're a Percy Street. I mean, we have people that, you know, have moved from Texas to Philly that are fucking screwed. They don't know where to eat, you know, and it's like those things really matter. So I think that there's like service and then there's hospitality. And I think that that, that level of hospitality is just really identifying what it's going to take to create a memory, right? Because that's kind of all you got right you leave a restaurant and like you could go back or you could not but you want to be touched you want like a connection you want to feel special and um i think that that's what we try to do it's kind of like that first time you went back to israel it's always trying to create that feeling again for all your customers look that's the best form of flattery that we could get at zahab is people that have been like you know i've been to israel and i've tasted these things never quite like this and this like totally brings me back 
that's as good as it gets. You know? Yeah, I've never been, but I've already felt like I've been transported, and I will be back. Well, you're coming, hub, baby. I'm coming, to, you're Israel, coming to Israel, no doubt about it. Mark my words on air. I will go. Awesome. Um, one last selfish question, please. How do you make the best shakshuka? It is one of my favorite dishes ever. Oh, shakshuka is uh, the key, key. The key to shakshuka, good shakshuka, is cooking out the liquid in the tomatoes. Um, so what you want to do is uh, you want to use a good amount of onions and garlic and really cook them down and then add your peppers and like slightly sweat the peppers so they have a little bit more of a presence. And then you put in your tomatoes and cook the hell out of the tomatoes and you can actually add a little bit of sugar too. Some people add sugar. We're getting this really, really dope Israeli honey from the Negev that has got all these like cool savory things going on. So we'll always like, we'll kind of like glaze the peppers and the tomatoes immediately in honey. So when they cook down, they sort of caramelize. And then just really good eggs. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's if, my secret. <laughs> if, if you're not enticed, hungry, or fascinated by this episode to go to Philly, check out Zahav and Citron and Rose and all your other restaurants. Thanks, bro. Or even take the trip to Israel and really see you know, what you're trying to do here in the country and doing so well. Thank you um, very much. I, I don't know how I can convince you otherwise because <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This is real. This is great. And I really appreciate it. Thank Thanks so for having much. me on. We're oh. like totally honored. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in Israel very shortly. Excellent. Bro. Sounds All right? great. Thank Thanks you, Michael. You. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.